All right, enemies. We love them, right? Love them, love them enemies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think y'all have talked about him a few times, is that right? Y'all remember old, old Dietrich? He said, when it comes to our enemies, precisely here, precisely with them, we are so completely without understanding. Our ideas are so totally perverted that we have to be reminded, do not consider yourselves clever or wise, which is to say, we don't know what we're talking about. Now, when he was doing that, he was talking about Romans 12, um, beginning and towards the end of it. Uh, but it's just as appropriate here because in Romans 12, that's where Paul is essentially quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, um, don't resist an evildoer, don't repay evil for evil, overcome evil, good. So Bonhoeffer continues, he says, when you confront your enemy, first and foremost, think about your own enmity with God and about his compassion towards you. And I think when we hear Jesus' words about um, the sun and the rain upon the good and the evil, the just and the unjust, we tend to think about somebody else, right? Say like, yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, you know, he does bring down rain on that joker, whoever that might be. But if Jesus' point is that God gives that out in abundance to all, how do you know you're not the enemy who he's raining down kindness on? It all depends who the enemy is in relation to. What happens to our idea of enemy when according to scripture, apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God? At the very notion, the very idea of enemies, I think requires us to admit as honestly as we can it's a lot more muddled and cloudy than we would like to admit. The world works a lot easier in our brains if who's an enemy and who is not is clearly defined. All right, one of the most, I think, telling ways in which humanity is just uh, confused, jumbled up about this situation is the fact, or it seems almost a fact of life, that we cannot love someone or something without almost immediately generating a corresponding hatred for anything or anyone that would threaten that. Isn't that interesting? All right, Cody talked about this last week, that as humans, we seem almost hardwired to, um, to create, to imagine, to hypothesize, to anticipate enemies. Right? Think about watching a movie you know, war, superheroes, or this or that, and how often you think, like, man, what would I do if I was in that? That's ridiculous when you think about it. None of us are ever going to be Superman, and therefore it's ridiculous to ask what we would do in that situation. But we do this stuff. That's why we love movies. And in particular, when it comes to enemies, it's always whoever they are that's the problem, right? One of the truest, if there is anywhere that self-righteousness exists in the world, it's when it comes to our notions of enemies. Every crusade presumes that if it weren't for them, everything would be right. No crusade would ever work if we even stopped for a moment to look at ourselves. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But who said that? If you were to look in your Bible for that quote, you're not going to find it. You'll hear the love of your neighbor, and you won't hear the hate your enemy part. I think Jesus is sort of teaching in a summarizing manner. I think what he's getting at is this. Is that the nature of sin is such that um, when our twisted flesh gets a hold of God's command to love our neighbor, it strangely but correspondingly seems to encourage hating our and our neighbor's enemies. When we hear God say, love your neighbor, somehow there is a part of us that then generates on its own and therefore hate our and our neighbor's enemies. When you think about it, it's actually possible that hard as loving your neighbors might be, that if, if we actually get to the point of doing it, the more we love them, the more we care about them, the more we desire for their well-being, the more infuriated we will be by anything that threatens that, right? Isn't it interesting? To fulfill one command of Christ could actually lead us to hate the enemies of that neighbor all the more. This is why patriotism is dangerous. I actually, when I wrote this, didn't realize it's July 4th weekend, so I assume God was up to something. Um, not because patriotism is some heinous evil, but because it is a good and right love of neighbor co-opted towards the ends of a hatred towards the non-neighbor. There was an old priest that once said that the, the truly worst things in the world are never the obviously evil things because they would be obvious. It is the corruption of the best that is the absolute worst. Jesus seems to be summarizing the inevitable misapplication of Scripture's teaching, whereby believers are so encouraged to love God that they hate the godless, that they are so encouraged to love the neighbor that they hate the threat to the neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But after last week's passage, which Cody navigated very well, you would think Jesus would be done, right? Even if you don't like what he said or you disagreed with it, I'm sure none of us feel that way because it's Jesus, but hypothetically speaking, um, if you didn't like what he said, everybody would at least agree that's the pinnacle of virtue, right? Turning the other cheek. Not responding, violence for violence. To which Jesus says, no, I'm not done. That's not it. I want you to love that enemy that hit you, that sued you, that turned you into a pack mule to carry his stuff for another mile. And I have been personally committed to nonviolence for over a decade. I've been part of a church committed to nonviolence for over a decade. Uh, and in all of my arguments and my debates about violence, force, police, war, I can't remember one where we ever get around to actually talking about loving an enemy because we're just always arguing about whether we should kill them back or not. We never get to the part of, what about loving them? But that's Jesus' point, is that not killing your enemies is not enough. Right? That's not the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You remember he mentioned that back earlier in chapter 5. 
This is where the classic terms, right, like pacifism or nonviolence, they break down. Um, and they really mislead because all they do is describe the absence of something. They say nothing about what one is to positively do proactively towards an enemy. The whole reason Jesus is saying that I don't want you to kill or retaliate against your enemies is because me and my father love them. It is as simple as it is profound. And I want you to love them too. Remember where I started at? I'm talking about enemies today. While we were yet enemies, God made peace with us through the death of his son. That's Paul in Romans 5. While we were enemies, God made peace with us. And I think it's because Jesus recognizes our former status, uh, our former vocation, jobs as ignorant enemies of God. I think it's because of that that he is so mercifully realistic in what he calls us to. I recognize that may seem like a paradox when it comes to nonviolence, but realistic and practical. Uh, because for starters, he makes it clear that we really do have enemies. I don't know if any of y'all have ever met folks like this or read about it, but I've known a few that have said, I've never met an enemy. Now, call me cynical. I am cynical. Um, but when I hear that, I think, good for you, buddy. It must be nice to live in Disneyland. Like, you've never met an enemy. Come on. That's not what Jesus is getting after. He's not advocating some just generic, uh, everybody should be a hippie, love for humanity, because deep down, everybody's a teddy bear. Or deep down, everybody wants to be a teddy bear. It's not what Jesus is saying, and that's often what nonviolence passes for. Jesus is very clear. There are some folks who will want to hurt, kill, curse, persecute, and sue you. And probably a whole lot more than that, as history has shown. Yet he calls us to love not also our enemies, not to love them despite that, but to love them precisely. That is precisely who I want you to fixate on. Our enemies in their total maliciousness. Enemies in everything that it means to be an enemy. Right? There, there is no hidden um, subtlety to the, to the word he uses for enemy that would allow us to say like, well, maybe it's just this kind of enemy or that kind of enemy. Right? Interestingly, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about love your neighbor, it's always in the singular, which is to say we don't get off the hook for saying, I, you know, I I love Knoxville, therefore I don't have to love any individual in Knoxville. It's, your neighbor is always that concrete, crotchety old guy right next door. But enemies is always in the plural, which is to say, not just one neighbor, all of them. Not just religious, political, personal, national, all of them. Covers everybody across the board. But maybe most striking of all, Jesus mentions no ulterior motives for the enemy. That he might be made a friend. That he might be converted. That he might just be killed by kindness and suddenly become a teddy bear after all. Obviously, we hope that's the case. And sometimes that is the case. Thank God, Cody told the story about Max. I have the privilege of getting to see Max and see that happen. That is rare. We, don't love, we didn't love Max because 
We knew that was going to happen. You just hope. But Jesus' command is not predicated on us sort of optimistically reconceptualizing all enemies as non-enemies and being able to say, I don't see enemies anywhere. But nor is our loving them predicated upon converting them to non-enemies. It is loving them precisely as the enemies that they are. Now, I'm sure we don't have any of these folks here. But I could imagine the way I grew up, if I told somebody this, someone would say, well, Jesus, what are we going to do about Russia? Or China? Or Iraq? Or I don't watch the news, whoever's threatening. I might suggest, well, what are we going to do about the man in the mirror? If we're going to go down that road. Uh, but to which I think Jesus might reply, if that question rings a bell at all. I never asked you to worry about Russia or protecting the world or running the world. In fact, me and my father are pretty good at it if you humans ever gave us a chance. All I have asked you to do is to be children of your father who gives sunshine and rain to those evil jokers and the righteous which includes those who are more righteous than you, by the way, and me. And the way that you can start being those children is by loving enemies like your dad. That's what Jesus is saying. Which means, for starters, to pray for them. The word he uses for pray for them is on behalf of. You know the whole idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died on behalf of us? Same word. That's what we're to do for our enemies, to pray on their behalf for what they cannot do for themselves, what they cannot bring to God for themselves. It is our job to look at them and say, I want to bring that person before God and intercede for them. In the same way that Christ stepped in for us. Right? Many a time, I've, been, I've done this myself, I've been part of prayer in churches where Somebody is having an altercation, having an issue, right? And we bring it up in church. We ask for prayer about it. Having a hard time with so-and-so. Uh, and Lord knows, that is much better than just sitting and stewing on the situation. But how often do we ever ask for a bunch of people to join us in prayer for our adversary? Right? When Jesus says, pray for your enemies, he is saying this to the disciples together. When Matthew is writing this, collecting this, in all likelihood, that's from a place of the community Matthew is a part of that regularly prays for their, inner, for their enemies. When we think of intercession, how wild would it be if as a regular part of our church service, we had intercession for our enemies? It's brilliant. It's right there. I've never done it. I don't know why I've never thought about it. Probably because I love checking the box just that I didn't punch him back because I don't want to love him. Not responding in violence for 10 years doesn't mean you get it figured out, FYI. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody. But for some reason, when it comes to prayer, enemies just kind of get a pass. Well, you know, when it comes to them, 
We've got to be realistic, right? What would happen you know, in the world if da-da-da? Uh, Can you imagine how tragic it would be if we took that approach with other things we pray about? Our marriages, our jobs, our kids, our health. If we said, well, we've got to be realistic about this. I mean, I, we can't pray for that. And the way that we, I think, implicitly do for enemies, we wouldn't pray about anything. But you all are people of prayer. I know y'all, I don't know everybody super well, but I know y'all well enough to know you're people of prayer, and I think you know what happens when you start praying for something in somebody. Both to the person you are praying for and to you. Which is to say, I think you know what happens when we start praying for enemies. Moreover, I suspect that if all we did to try to apply this was just start praying for them, because in reality, that's often all we can do, but that's a side note. If all we did was to start praying for them, I imagine all the classic conversations of what would you do if the terrorist from Iraq for some reason came to Johnny's house in Knoxville, Tennessee and broke in and tried to get my, you know how it goes. Nobody ever asked, why is he in Knoxville? But all those conversations would either be eliminated altogether or would look totally different if my life of worship was regularly constituted by praying for whoever I could identify as an enemy. It would look radically different. Practical as prayer is, though, Jesus is not content for our love of enemies to be confined just within the walls of the church. He says... Let's talk about, let's think about how you present to people. Right? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't pagans do that? Right? It may sound like an odd thing to fixate on for Jesus, um, but when you think about it, for a lot of us, greetings are our only personal contact with the majority of the wider world. I don't like greetings because I'm a cynical, not kind person. Um, I don't like that it matters what I do in a quick momentary exchange. Jesus is saying, yes, it does. But though we rarely give it conscious attention, uh, most of us, as I think about it, I think we have a pretty sophisticated calculus whereby we determine uh, how we calibrate our greetings. What degree of warmth, what look, what type of handshake, how many words, what kind of words. Right, slight shift in eyes and mouth. We have a whole range of greetings for anybody, you know, from beloved friend to foe. And obviously those close to us get the warmest ones. But Jesus is saying that even greetings are a means of discipleship. In the ancient world, greetings, when you hear this, uh, a greeting was not a sup, um, or my, my preference, howdy. That's my way of getting out of engaging, usually. Sorry if I've said that. Because um, I don't know what to do in a greeting. Uh, but in the ancient world, greetings were almost like a benediction. If you're familiar with churches that pass the peace of Christ, where you take time to say peace of Christ to you, right? hug or a handshake or a kiss if you're really a weirdo. Um, but a greeting was something more like that. 
peace be with you, which is why they dished it out so carefully. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I want you to shed that abroad to folks you greet like it's your kids on Christmas morning. Pagans, unbelievers, especially enemies. I want anybody that has even a moment with you to have a chance for you to bless them with peace. Remember that sun and that rain that my father lavishes upon the good and the evil? He says, that's how your greetings are supposed to be for the human world. Like the father's son, the Christian's greetings are to be warm, impartial, wide-reaching. Like the rain, they should be soaking, nourishing, and well-timed. Again, I don't like that. That means I have a lot of work to do. I think he's talking about greetings. You want to know how to love enemies? Pray and greet. Start there. All of which is to say, what Jesus is talking about is not a question of whether you believe in justified violence or not. Right? Jesus is not getting to this point in the sermon and saying, all right, guys, are you convinced to become pacifist? It's a matter of whether you're a disciple or not. Who are you following? And one of my favorite theologians, Stanley Harwas, he said, at this point, the disciples are no longer faced with a decision. The the only, the most important decision to be made has already been made by Jesus speaking to them and saying, you come and follow me. That's the only decision that really mattered. The only question now is if they are going to be what they are, be who they have been called to be. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven who pours out sunshine and rain on the good and the evil alike. As I imagine y'all have probably discussed, especially um, with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount uh, has a lot of things going on. Some of them are indeed commands, but as a whole, it is really more like a description of the kingdom. Who's blessed in it? What the king is like who's ruling it? Um, How to make sense of it, the kingdom that Christ is bringing that nobody seemed to be able to make sense of when he was walking around. Which means, I suggest, if we can't love our enemies, we'll probably never be able to make sense of the kingdom. And for that matter, if we can't love our enemies, we'll probably have a really hard time making sense of our father who loves his enemies. It's almost like a hermeneutical key, uh, an interpretive key to understanding the world. But on the positive end of things, I really am convinced that the more we can learn to try, to dare, to just risk, take risk to love our enemies, the more that you really will grow eyes to see the new creation that our risen Lord is at hard work in bringing to birth. All right, and just as a brief encouragement here, um, it's easy as a preacher to just always talk about what we're not doing. Uh, I have the privilege of knowing the stories of some of y'all and that you have done this, that you have absorbed some serious violence into yourself and returned it with love. 
Um, those of you that have, because I know you, you probably don't think you have, and you just say, you know, that's just what you do. That's because you're the sheep in the sheep and the goats parable. Right? You remember that where Jesus, where they say, Jesus says, blessed are you, you cared for me in these ways and these ways. And they say, when did we do that? And he said, when you did it to the least of those. So I, I just want to say, there are some of you who have done it. And you are our light on a hill that shows us that Christ is at work. Um, you may say, well, that's not an enemy. That's not a whatever we normally think of in the big political sense. But as a Southerner, I know we are uniquely capable of making enemies. Um, it could be anybody. Ma, Pa, Sissy, Bubba, who, like, you know, we're good at holding grudges. Um, and there are lots of different ways of having enemies than just whoever's on CNN or TV or this or that. Uh, and so there are some of you, and I want to just acknowledge that. For those of you who know them, say, you want to know how to do this? Just start by doing what they do. Instead of just a pat on the back, say, I just need to spend time with somebody who knows how to love people that way. Sorry, that's a little tangent. For those of us who are not so practiced in loving enemies, though, who are still figuring out uh, this being salty business, I want to give this encouragement. Uh, in the world of theology, especially amongst some of the greatest Lutheran theologians, there's this idea that has floated around that every word of God that is spoken to us contains both law and gospel. That every word of God spoken to us contains both command and promise. It is never just one or the other. And so here, it is hugely significant that we are commanded to love our enemies that we might be sons of God. That's quite the implication. Have you ever thought about loving your enemies as a uh, means of helping you grow closer to God? I've never found that book in the Lifeway bookstore. And for all our talk about how to grow close to God, Scripture actually doesn't use that language a lot very explicitly, but this comes pretty close. Right? Being a child of your Father in heaven, that sounds pretty close, doesn't it? worth a try. Jesus is not saying, I want you to just be this like stoic who goes in and gets your head chopped off because you don't care about anything. He's saying, I want you to be close to your dad and this is how it works. To my dad. You remember what Paul says in Romans about the sons of God? Anybody remember that in Romans 8? He says that creation is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. So that creation itself could be liberated into the freedom of the sons of God. The freedom and the glory. I'm convinced that one of the greatest gifts of the new creation that Christ died and rose to inaugurate is for God's children to be free from the burden of calculating who to love and to what degree. All the worry about how warm to be to those who are hostile to us. How much to love those who seem undeserving. 
Who gets conditional love? Who gets the more unconditional love? I think Jesus wants to abolish all those distinctions. That would be real freedom. That would be some sort of liberation. There was one old German scholar that said, if love no longer had to wait on the performance of others, on the reciprocity of others, something, a, a truly miraculous transformation would have had to take place. Can you imagine how freeing it would be if we believed enough that we don't have to love or to uh, run the world that we had time to love our enemies? If we were so convinced that it wasn't our job to protect the world that we could love our enemies, how freeing that would be? How freeing it would be if we didn't have to decide who gets how much love? It's exhausting. It's just turned me into a jerk when I do it. An old pastor once said, maturity, Christian maturity, is the complete gift of ourselves to all people, even to our enemies. Which I think is a very fitting way to close because in our last verse, Jesus says, and all this stuff I'm commanding you to do, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As Protestants, we have a very bad habit of hearing the word perfect and we think, uh, morally faultless. That's not what it means. Um, It means complete, whole, mature. This is how you be mature or complete like your Father. Which is to say, without our enemies, we're incomplete. There is something about those jokers that God intends to make us more who he intends us to be, without which we're less. Our love, as Jesus makes clear, if it cannot burst its normal bounds, right? We sang about... And I even, I know, the, I love this song. I know the guys that wrote the song. Um, Set a fire in our soul that we can't contain, can't control. Uh, have we really thought about the implications of what a, an uncontrollable fire looks like? It means you don't have any sense of where it's going to go and who it's going to swallow up. I got one guess. Might be enemies. Our love, if it cannot burst its normal bounds, is no better than that of pagans. Jesus is straightforward. But thank God that Christ's love is not as limited as humanity's. And that is precisely what we come to celebrate at this table every week, that Christ deals with his enemies, which again, read as us, by asking his Father to forgive them i.e. us, and welcoming them to the table to share his very flesh and blood that we broke and shed.